Well, I'm guessing that many of you have seen those um, orange jump bikes that are all around town. They um, arrived in May, which was actually right when I was leaving, so I didn't notice them myself until uh, just this last month. And uh, today I decided to try one. So that was fun. It was, um, it was a little cloudy all morning in my neighborhood, and my mind was feeling a little bit stuck, so that seemed like a possible practice. And so then while I was uh, cruising around on this thing, I marveled at the temporariness of these things, right? That I could have this bike for a short amount of time just by signing onto it with my cell phone. <laughs> it's pretty cool, actually. I don't know if you've tried them, but when you, uh, when you sign on, you send in your little magic code, and uh, the lock unlocks wirelessly, <laughs> instantaneously. Otherwise, you can't get it off. So... Um, that was good. And then after I rode around for 30 minutes, it happened that those were the exact 30 minutes when all the fog cleared and everything was sunny when I parked the bike. So that too was pretty temporary. So I, um, I thought about impermanence in that, you know, we hear so much about impermanence in Buddhist teachings, uh, almost so much that we just turn our minds off and say, oh yeah, I got it, which is the antithesis of impermanence, right? <laughs> so um, my mind's on this one because I just taught about it. So there's this one that is very thorough about all the six uh, sense bases that we have. And it says, the eye is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Forms, things you see with the eye, are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. And then that pattern repeats for the ear and sounds, the nose and scents, the tongue and tastes, the body and tangibles, and then the mind is also impermanent. And so our mental phenomena, things that we detect with our mind, like thoughts and emotions and other things, all of this is impermanent changing and becoming otherwise. What does that really mean? So we're, I think we're meant to examine this closely and the thoroughness is not to bore us but to um, make sure that we don't allow there's some part that can kind of hang out in our mind as, as permanent or um, yeah okay these other things change but this part that's really reliable actually nothing truly nothing is constant or reliable permanent or unchanging some concepts and ideas can be that way. Um, so, you know, but um, basically the experiences that we have are continually flowing. So then I thought the word temporariness might be just enough of a different word to uh, jog the mind into not falling asleep, but the word impermanence gives a little bit different flavor, could wake us up to this reality. Although I'm going to have an even better term later. So then, I'm kind of carrying that notion, you know, what does this really imply for our lives? There's really nowhere to land. Have you landed yet, anybody in your life, such that everything is pretty much constant, the same, predictable? Um, no, <laughs> I haven't either. 
So everything is in between. Everything is in process. Not really settled. Um, not really reliable because of that. Some things are relatively reliable, but um, you know we know that things can change. And actually, that's the good news. I once was on a retreat where somebody was wearing a t-shirt that said, impermanence makes everything possible. <laughs> and it's true, right? <laughs> it's true. I couldn't compliment her right away on her shirt because we were in silence. But it's good. So, you know, there's, um, there's another term for this that's visible from the, the Buddha's own journey, which is uh, the word homelessness. There's nowhere to land. Um, it's like being ignoring the conventional meaning of that term. You know, the, the homeless life is one where we don't settle. We're, we're not fixed and stuck in anything in particular. And you can have a house, it's okay, and still be homeless if your mind is not stuck and settled. So the Buddha, in the case of the Buddha, of course, he literally as well as psychologically left home. He left his familiar, comfortable world in ancient India to go on his quest. And you know, even for us, we can imagine that this is a, a big deal to grow up in one place. Most people didn't go that far and, and then go off into the jungle. But it's probably more dramatic even than we realize, given our easy travel situations for most of us. Um, you know, we, it's not that hard to drive several towns over, or if you don't have a car, you can take a bus or a train. Um, many of us have been on planes, although, you know, not everyone can do that because of their means, but most people can travel farther than people in ancient India did ever in their lives. And so this notion also of and of course, the system of caste was much stronger. And so the idea that you would deliberately renounce a pretty good birth into a, you know, a higher level caste was quite uh, dramatic at the time. So what did the Buddha do? Well, he, he was seeking liberation. And he first, first, he went to the renowned teachers of the time. You know, he didn't actually just immediately go off on his own and do it all himself. He left home, but he went to teachers, and he said, teach me what you know, you're, you're a well-known person, and he learned what they taught him, mostly powerful concentration techniques uh, that were considered to be, you know, that were probably better known then than they are now. But he mastered those and realized it wasn't what he wanted. He was still not, in his opinion, liberated. So he went even further afield, and he entered the jungle, and he entered the charnel grounds, and this is really getting you know, out of the mainstream. And he was pursuing what he called liberation, not just another mind state or another condition, but genuine freedom from all conditions. He had a high standard. And only because of that, I think, did he make it. So Zen teacher Kurt Spellmeyer um, uses an even better term than homelessness. So we're moving along from impermanence to temporariness to homelessness to this one liminality. I love that word. 
I tried it on you in the guided meditation, if you were still listening at that point. But it, the liminal space is the space in between uh, things that are named. So like there's the liminal space between um, darkness and day, the dawn is a liminal space. And you know that moment, like right before the sun rises, when it's just that eerie brightness, it's getting bright, but the sun hasn't appeared yet. You can't really say it's dawn, but it's no longer night. So those are kind of liminal spaces. And this is from one of Kurt Spellmeyer's essays. Joseph Campbell, the path-breaking mythologist, recognized in the Buddha's narrative the outlines of a structure that he later refined in many of his books. Drawing on traditions from around the world and reaching back to the Stone Age, he identified the stages of what he called the hero's journey, departure from home, then liminality, a crisis, transformation, and at last the hero's victorious return. It's no accident that Campbell's stages match the Buddha's quest almost point for point because the Dharma played a central role in the development of his ideas. But the two journeys differ, diverge in one way, a detail overlooked by Campbell, and I would say by many Buddhists throughout history. The Buddha never closed the circle. It's true that on occasion he returned to the city where he was raised, but up to his last breath, he remained on Agarika without home, and he did everything he could to ensure that his followers remembered this. Liminality, in-betweenness, is the Dharma's dwelling place. So I like that he questions you know, what Joseph Campbell came up with. And it's not a surprising story. We know the story of the hero who you know, has to give everything up and then go through great trials, and then there's a transformation of some kind and then comes back bearing gifts. It's repeated many, 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 many times. But um, he draws, in this piece, uh, Spellmeyer is drawing attention to the fact that he didn't, really, he didn't really land. It wasn't that he was one way, and then he had a transformation, and then he was this other thing. X becomes Y, like a chemical reaction or something. Um, but instead, that X becomes something undefinable, but still able to be here in this world and help others, you know, reach whatever that is. So I love this idea, and I don't really know how to talk about it, but I'm going to try. Um, I would say that dedicated practitioners of the path, whether they are monastic or lay people, can embody this idea of homelessness. You know, you can still have your home, you could have a job, you could have a relationship, etc. Sometimes we, as lay people, think that Certain realms of practice um, are not really for us. You know, like there's householders and then there's, you know, monastics who become homeless. But um, if we let the boundaries loosen a little bit around that, we could say that home, the real homelessness is in the mind. You know, whether or not we're fixed on our ideas, our opinions, our way of being, our sense of identity our certainty about what we can and can't do. Do any of you have complete openness in any of those areas that I named? Most of us have fixed points in all of those things that we're sure about. Um, so, you know, we're challenged to really go beyond any kind of concept. 
Um, it's not easy to live that way, but it's worth bringing to mind. You know, that may not be something that we're going to achieve tomorrow, and it may be the work of a lifetime, if not longer, but it's fruitful, I think, to keep thinking about that. Where have I settled? Where am I stuck? You know, not, not the useful support that we all need, you know, the support of Dharma friends, the support of reading the texts, or if we have a, certainly I recommend daily meditation. Um, but we can do all of these things without being stuck on them, not having fixed views about them. And then the, the more insidious ones are the ones where we think about what we can and can't do, or who we are, or what would be possible for us psychologically. So again, from Spellmeyer, true liminality doesn't depend on wearing robes or rising earlier than the sun. Those are only skillful means devised to nudge the Buddhist followers toward an encounter with the real in-between, a liminality of the mind. But this in-between is hard for all of us to find because we don't want to wander as the Buddha did without any clear destination we much prefer to dwell in our certainties, even though they often stand in the way of change. So the mind really does try to, of course, make things certain and structured and known. I see my mind do this a hundred times a day. You know, that's the habit. It's like, where can I stand? What can I fix upon? Stephen Batchelor has a nice quote about the path in his book, Living with the Devil. He says, the path space is the openness we are able to tolerate within our hearts and minds. We can understand that, I think, if we've practiced a bit, is that there's only a certain amount of openness that we can tolerate at a given time. And so then that's also the realm for compassion. You know, I can talk very easily. It's all talk, right, to say, oh, living with no views and being homeless in our mind. And, um, but there's only a certain amount at a given time certain amount of capacity that we have for that degree of openness. So, you know, I, I offer it gently, but, you know, with a sense of this, this could be a, a, a guide star for us, even as we, you know, have our areas of comfort that we, that we take to, you know, when we know that we're not able to tolerate any more openness at that moment. This is true, in a, you know, just like Joseph Campbell's model goes in a lot of, you know, comes from a lot of different cultures, is repeated in a lot of different spiritual systems. Uh, this idea also of being a little bit on the edge is also repeated in a lot of spiritual systems. So I want to quote from Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest. He's a um, contemporary, lives in New Mexico. The edge of things is a liminal space a very sacred place where guardian angels are especially available and needed. The edge is a holy place, or as the Celts called it, a thin place, and you have to be taught how to live there. To take your position on the spiritual edge of things is to learn how to move safely in and out, back and forth, across and return. It is a prophetic position, not a rebellious or antisocial one. You are free from its central seductions, but also free this is referring to the system that you're in. You're free from the central system's seductions, but also free to hear its core message in very new and creative ways. When you are at the center of something, you usually confuse the essentials with the non-essentials, 
and get tied down by trivia, loyalty tests, and job security. Not much truth can happen there. But a person in this liminal space is on the edge of the inside, not an outsider throwing rocks, not a comfortable insider who defends the status quo, but one who lives precariously with two perspectives held tightly together, the faithful insider and the critical outsider at the same time. Not ensconced safely inside, but not so far outside as to lose compassion or understanding. It is a unique kind of living and seeing, which will largely leave the prophet with nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to lay his head being a quote from Luke, actually. So that's interesting, right? Sounds very similar. Homelessness, nowhere to lay your head, this liminality. This does come up, actually. This, these ideas come up um, somewhat peripherally or indirectly in the, the teachings from the earliest teachings in the Pali Canon. For example, the Buddha was a little coy about what enlightenment is. You know, we would like to know what enlightenment is. It's a state, you know, it's mostly if we imagine it, we imagine it like heaven, you know, it's always pleasant, we're always wise and compassionate, and we say the right thing, and we're, we beam like beacons. I don't know what it is. So uh, these, are all very, these are all very affirmative statements. But the Buddha was not very affirmative about what enlightenment is. So... Um, in the Pali Suttas, this is again from Spellmeyer, in the Pali Suttas, when he describes the experience, he typically refers to what it's not. He calls it amanta, the deathless, rather than choosing an affirmative like eternal life. He says that enlightenment is unborn, unproduced, and unconditioned. It's interesting. There's also quite a famous set of lines from the Dhammapada that you may have heard, it says, hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By love alone is hatred appeased. How many of you have heard that line? Yeah, a good half of you have heard that. But it's a poor translation. The word that's translated as love, as the opposite of hatred, is not metta or something like that. It's actually not in the affirmative. The word used is avarena, which literally means non-hatred. So hatred is appeased by non-hatred. Um, so words like non-hatred and unborn take us into liminality because they straddle the line between the meaningful and the meaningless. Most of us think we understand love and hate or alive and dead, and these alternatives seem to foreclose any other possibilities. Yet we have more options than we might recognize, and we'll find them if we're prepared to wander homelessly. So, you know, there's this sense of um, a lot of what the Buddha says about awakening is kind of like that. It's, it's a little, um, you can't quite put your finger on it. I actually like non-hatred because it's, it seems to include more things than love. Definitely it includes love, but how about compassion or patience or generosity or other things that are not about hatred? Seems like it's a much more broad and useful term. So there are techniques in practice that we can use to familiarize ourselves with liminality and to, if you like that word, or pick another one, uh, in order to start experiencing this a little bit, you know, to test our 
tolerance for openness, if you will. Um, one of them is to um, practice sitting in the middle of the swirl of what comes during meditation. So there are techniques where we have an object and we rest with that, um, many different techniques, but there's one that's very open where we sit and we allow, maybe we tune in first to all the sensations of the body and then tune in to any emotions that are present, tune into the externals like the sounds, tune into any thoughts or views that might be hovering around our mind or intentions, and then um, eventually tune into the sense of awareness itself. And just you know, keep opening, not because we need to be aware of all these things simultaneously, that's difficult, but because we want to make sure we don't leave anything out of what we can possibly be aware of, and then to rest in that openness and allow everything to come and go. And when you do that, um, sometimes it gets very quiet and it's just really restful. And sometimes what you've done is give permission for everything to come, especially if you're in a, you know, if you're in a time where there's a lot going on and you already have something in your mind that's kind of working around, you can sit down and say, okay, I'm going to set that aside and just focus on the breath. And that's a very good thing to do. Or you can sit and say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to think about this. I'm going to I'm going to rest with what this feels like and just allow, you know, the uncertainty like I just lost my job, what am I going to do or the uncertainty of how in the world am I going to help my child who's in a bad situation? Whatever it is that's really occupying my mind, open to everything that comes. Don't do anything with it. It's like sitting in a I don't know whirlpool and um, and see you'll notice that what happens is that things kind of sort themselves out in a certain way to the degree that we cannot grab onto things and try to make them certain and try to say well there's this and he's like that and this is what I should do that's what the mind wants to do but if we um, instead stay in this liminal space of allowing things to to flow often there's a a different ordering of them, or something new is seen that we hadn't seen before. We may not get it crystal clear, here it is. <laughs> That's, of course, what the mind wants. But we will understand viscerally what's going on much more deeply. And the degree to which we can continue with that, we'll actually have access to more wisdom than we would have just through thinking. It's an interesting technique to try, if you think it would be useful either in a specific situation or just try it. Oh, the microphone has decided that this talk is almost over by uh, <laughs> running out of batteries. There wasn't much liminal space there. Sometimes it's just on or off. So maybe I'll just wrap up by saying that the Dharma's the Dharma's true home is neither here nor there, neither this nor that, but in that, somehow that space in between, which isn't a real space, you know, it's almost the dissolution of space. So it's worthy to, to practice that, you know, to bring it more into our awareness and make it more a part of our life because it's not the way uh, we're traditionally conditioned to be. So we're we're working against the habitual conditioning of the mind, and we'll see what 
you know, we'll see what can come of that for us. A lot of new possibilities open up. So liminality and edges, may they, may they play a role in your practice. Thank you. We have some time. Is there, are there comments or questions? and there's a lot of freedom, compassion, and other moments when it's just like exposed up. And yeah. just having both experiences and having that contrast, it's almost like, well, you know, I'm here now, but I know about this other. That's right. So we have a reference point of something that's more open. And I find that you know, maybe that reference point is at a particular level and then through practice it sort of deepens and we get a, you know, a, a stronger reference point um, over time. My experience is that just knowing that helps the mind to more often open or to be more tolerant of greater openness, something like that, because of even just having a, a vague knowledge that that reference point is there, even if we're not there all the time. So that's maybe one level of responding is that the mind will find its way toward, you know, because I think there's a natural movement. I think that the Dharma is a natural movement of the heart. And then maybe I'll add another level, which is that there's, um, if we're really, really open to anything, then there's no reason to prefer the openness to the closeness, Right. It's like if openness is good and closeness is bad, we've just introduced another duality. That's a layer of closeness. To, so really accepting the heart as it is includes the times when we're asleep. And, you know, that's got to be just part of it. Um, so that's maybe, those are, yeah, those are kind of two different sides of the same coin. Is that we're aiming for more and more openness, maybe to always be that open. And, well, you know, we... We accept, really, if we really accept everything, it includes accepting the times that we're closed. Does that help a little bit, or does it just, uh, you know, sidestep? <laughs> but the way to work is always just to notice how the mind is at this moment. You know, that's what you can do, is that you can know. You can know this moment, the refuge of the Buddha. And so that's, I think that's enough. And Uh, when you're in the this amorphous space, how do you avoid the what seems to me to be a natural human tendency to start? So, so you're at the edge defining what the edge is 
or in between, in between what? Right. So, it, you know, if you start creeping into that. Yeah. So I have to use some kind of language. So I'm using language of edges, which includes space or yeah. um, temporariness, which includes time, right? And so then, yes, there's a, and of course, um, even in the Richard Rohr quote, it said, if we take up the position at the edge of the inside, well, you've just created a position by doing that, right? So I guess I'm, um, I'll be careful not to try to get too entangled in the language. But um, I also want to be careful with the word amorphous. I don't think an experience like this has to be vague, necessarily. It could be very clear, but just not, not fixed, right? Um, so... Let's see, there's, there's a, a story um, of a Zen master who uh, had a, he used to invite um, kind of traditional type Japanese practitioner, you know, Japanese Zen practitioners into his study to try to wake them up. And he would show them um, a hibachi. You guys know what that is. It's a heater that they use in Japan, like a little, in the winter, a little space heater thing. But um, and he would he had it filled with water and had some fish in it, um, and he called it his air conditioner. And he would show them this thing that had the fish in it, so it was kind of already a strange image. And then he would call it the air conditioner, and he said that the people who were sort of more awake and relaxed would laugh and think this was a hilarious um, kind of uh, contrast, whereas the people who were rigid and fixed would frown and say hibachis are for winter. You know, and so um, for a while, when when he first heard this story, he, of course, wanted to identify with the people who were awake and would have laughed at that. You know, he said, oh, I'm like the author of the piece who, who wrote, you know, wrote about this story would say, um, oh, you know, at first I thought, well, I'm one of those ones who would have thought the joke was funny and I would have seen through it. And and then he began to realize that actually it's more subtle than he thought in that the fact that there was a joke there meant that, that he could get the joke, meant that he had to know actually that hibachis were for winter <laughs> and that there was a contrast with putting fish in them and having it be kind of a room temperature thing and called an air conditioner. So um, there's a way in which, you know, being in this liminal state totally accepts all the fixed states that are around it, if you will, but, you know, it's not that they don't exist or that it's a problem that it names them, but it's just not, um, not going to get stuck in them necessarily. Did that help at all? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it is tricky. That's why, that's why I said it was going to be hard to talk about because words by definition create definitions of things. That's their purpose. They're supposed to be clear. And, um, but yeah, so this is stuff that's hard to talk about, but I feel like it's something we can know in our heart when we, you know, when we listen to this and we realize we, I mean, we know in, intuitively that we're not looking for the equivalent of heaven. You know, we're not looking for, we, enlightenment is not a fixed state where it's all this way, this way, this way, and everybody who gets there looks like this. We know that at some level. That's too simplistic. Um, maybe you never get there. I don't know. Maybe anytime you think you've got there, that's the sign that 
not. So um, it's just, this isn't meant to confuse or be too obscure or abstract, but really more to inspire that uh, any degree of um, stuckness that it might let go or space that it might create, I'm hoping will have a positive feel, a feeling of loosening or opening or relaxing or allowing compassion or love. You know, that's what these guide stars do for us. There's a lovely saying that I heard on, on retreat once, which is, take what you can use and let the rest go by. And I think that might be good for teachings like this. Actually, this is quite funny. The, the, I first saw that in the bathroom. It, it was posted on the wall in a retreat center in the bathroom, right? What does the digestive system do? <laughs> take what you can use and let the rest go by. So there's, a, there's something to be said for that in the teachings also. For a good time, goodbye. For a good time, call goodbye. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.